Good afternoon, and uh, welcome to the 2017 Charles Neuhauser Lecture. My name is Michael Sony. I am the director of the Fairbanks Center, and it's my honor to uh, host uh, uh, tonight's event and to introduce our speaker. Charles Neuhauser, Harvard class of 1953, uh, was a longtime uh, public servant and a scholar. He had a distinguished uh, career uh, in uh, the Central Intelligence Agency and other American intelligence services from 1958 until 1981, which means, of course, that his career as an analyst spanned the period from the Great Leap Forward through the 1960s and the Cultural Revolution and even into the early period of the Reform Era. In, from 1966 to 1967, as China was entering a particularly troubled and violent phase in its history, Charles Neuhauser spent a year at the center, the then Center for East Asian Research at Harvard, the predecessor of the Fairbanks Center, uh, where he worked on the causes of the Cultural Revolution. He wrote a number of scholarly articles, which were shared with the scholarly community, uh, and we can only assume that he um, produced uh, intelligence analysis that was also shared within the American government as well. Uh, we are told that Charlie, as he was known, was a man of strong opinions and acerbic wit, which suggests to me that he probably found a natural home at the Fairbank Center uh, and among colleagues uh, uh, at that time. Uh, Charlie died uh, very young in 1987. The lecture series that brings us together today was established in 1988, the following year, through the generosity of Charles' brother, uh, Paul Neuhauser, class of 1955. And we're very thrilled to welcome uh, Paul and Mary Neuhauser to join us uh, to today's lecture uh, as well. Uh, I'd also like to recognize Rod McFarker, who was director of the Fairbank Center at that time. Uh, and uh, was uh, involved in the establishment of the lecture series. From the perspective of 2017, Paul uh, and, and Rod uh, were very foresighted in crafting the terms of the lecture series. Uh, since 1988, the Fairbank Center has invited every year a public intellectual as a way of remembering the ideal that was demonstrated both by Charlie and, of course, by John King Fairbank, the founder uh, of our center, the ideal of bridging the worlds of academia and public service, of connecting China scholars and China researchers with uh, China analysts, China policymakers, uh, and decision makers. Past speakers in this series, uh, it's a very distinguished list of names that will be known to many of you, uh, including Richard Holbrook, Michael Oxenberg, Ken Lieberthal, Susan Shirk, uh, Elizabeth Economy, and many others. It gives me great pleasure uh, today to add a new name to the list of uh, Neuhauser speakers, James Steinberg. Uh, Jim served as uh, Principal Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State for Hillary Clinton, uh, Dean of the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs, Vice President and Foreign Policy Studies Director at the Brookings Institution, Deputy National Security Advisor uh, under President Clinton, 
uh, Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff and Deputy Assistant Secretary for Analysis in the Bureau of uh, Intelligence and Research. So he really, his career in a, in a sense, really embodies the very principles of the lecture series, a man who has moved uh, back and forth between the intellectual, the academic world, the policy world, and the think tank world. His most, recently, uh, most recent position was as dean of the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, a position that he left in June of last year. He's the co-author of um, an, a number of works, including works on how to be a public intellectual, um, but also strategic reassurance and resolve U.S.-China relations in the 21st century and difficult, translation, difficult transitions, excuse me, foreign policy troubles at the outset of presidential power. We sometimes, uh, when we have academic speakers uh, speak at the Fairbanks Center, we have to ask them to adjust their topic to make it of slightly broader appeal and broader interest rather than the very narrow uh, topics that are sometimes proposed to us. I don't think we ever thought that we needed to do that with today's uh, proposed uh, uh, lecture. Um, uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Jim Steinberg, the 2017 Newhouser lecturer. He'll speak on embracing sovereignty, China, the US, and the future of world order. Well, thank you, Michael, for that uh, very kind uh, introduction. Uh, it's really a great honor for me to be here. Um, though it's been many years since uh, John King Fairbank taught here and wrote about China, uh, I still have my graduate students read his work. And although China has changed dramatically uh, since those days and since the days that Charlie Neuhauser was here, um, and subsequent historians have taken different views of the history that John King Fairbank wrote about, his perspective remains uh, enormously important, not only in understanding China's past, but its present and its future. Uh, it's a special privilege for me uh, to be part of this lecture series and to thank uh, our sponsors for this, because as Michael said, uh, for me, the issue of bridging the gap between the academy and the world of, of practice and public service is something that's very dear to my heart and something that I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about on both sides of the divide between uh, working in government and working in the academy. And I'm especially honored to stand in the line of the great speakers that you mentioned, including the inestimable Richard Holbrook, who I believe was the first Newhouser lecturer, uh, who was a great friend uh, and someone we all sorely miss. Um, so I want to talk today uh, about the emerging worldviews and grand strategy of uh, China and the United States, um, and the implications that these choices that both countries are making now have not just for the relations between our two countries, but also for the world more broadly. And in this respect, it's perhaps useful to recall JKF's prescient observation in the preface to uh, the original edition of China, A New History, where he wrote, this was in 1991, and I quote, Perhaps the Chinese have finally joined the great outside world just in time to participate in its collapse. <laughs> he went on, however, to say a few observers, less pessimistic, and I believe he was probably one of those, uh, believe that in the end, only a, this, a survival capacity like that exhibited by the Chinese for three millennia can save us. So my goal in part today is to try to answer the question of whether China's emergence as a major player on the international scene will in fact save us, will lead us to a more peaceful and prosperous world, 
or unlike uh, John King Fairbank, something less optimistic. <laughs> Sadly, I don't have a crystal ball. And like most of us, I see into the future darkly. Uh, so we're forced to look in trying to understand that future at the past and the present, just as John King Fairbank and others have done. And in particular, to look at the evolving international strategies of China and the United States and what they pretend, as I say, not just for bilateral relationships between our two countries, but also for regional and global stability. Now, it's especially appropriate that we're meeting today on the opening days of the 19th Party Congress of the CCP, which will, of course, have considerable impact on the issues we're discussing today. And as I suspect most of you know, uh, just uh, two days ago, President Xi delivered his work report to uh, the, the Congress, a three-and-a-half-hour stem winder. Um, I'll confess to you, I haven't read the full text, and I lack both the Mandarin and the Sitzfleisch to watch the video, which is available on YouTube. But I have seen the press reports, and I'll be coming back to some of the things that we think we are beginning to learn from that meeting later in today's talk. But my text for my sermon today is not the work report, but rather two other speeches. One, the speech given by President Trump last month at the UN General Assembly. And the second one, uh, one given by President Xi at Davos earlier this year. I've chosen these two speeches as a point of departure, in part because they were both given at large international gatherings that re perhaps represent the most important international fora for global engagement in the world today. Now, I'm going to talk about these speeches, but I want to make, since we're in the academy, a methodological point uh, to begin with. As I know everyone here understands, studying speeches of this kind does not necessarily tell us what the speakers really think or really intend to do, but rather what they want their various audiences to think they're going to do. What they say may be an honest account of what their intentions are, or their words may be designed to influence or mislead or even to deceive. And it's especially important to keep that in mind for both of these speeches as we are examining the, the, the text and to recall that the audiences for both of these speeches were international audiences, not domestic ones. But as we think about these two speeches, we will later want to ask ourselves the question, why the two leaders chose to articulate their strategy in these terms, and what, if anything, that tells us about their two intentions. But as I said, I first want to look at what they actually said. And I'm going to begin with two quotes. The first quote, and I quote, strong sovereign nations let diverse countries with different values and different dreams not just coexist, but work side by side on the basis of mutual respect. In foreign affairs, we are renewing this founding principle of sovereignty. The second quote, and I quote, Today, mankind has become a close-knit community of shared future. Countries have extensive convergent interests and are mutually dependent. They should view their own interests in a broader context. As long as we keep to the goal of building a community of shared future for mankind and work hand-in-hand hand to fulfill our responsibilities, we will be able to create a better world. Now, like my students back at Syracuse, you know when you're being set up for a trick question. <laughs> and the answer, of course, is that the first quote is from President Trump. And the second quote is from President Xi. But as you listen to the words, I think you might agree that it's not hard to imagine generations of Chinese diplomats and leaders coming to the UN and speaking of the central role of sovereignty. For a diplomat or a scholar of Chinese foreign policy, if you closed your eyes and listened to Trump's words, 
you'd immediately hear echoes of the Panchil Treaty and the five principles of coexistence, which begin, after all, with, quote, mutual respect for each other's territory and sovereignty. And it also isn't hard to imagine President Obama or President Roosevelt or President Wilson, for that matter, talking about the need to view national interest in a broader context. Indeed, listening to these two speeches or reading the text, one is struck by what seems to be almost a role reversal between the two. A US president going before an international audience to extol sovereignty and the right of every nation to put its interests first. And a Chinese president talking about the need to embed national interests in a broader context. For the political scientists in the room who like to do content analysis, President Trump uses the word sovereign or sovereignty 16 times in the speech, concluding in the end with a ringing quote, call for a great reawakening of nations, for the revival of their spirits, their pride, and their patriotism. President Xi, by contrast, uses forms of the word global 58 times in his speech, and specifically globalization 24. There are five references to global governance and nary a one to sovereignty. Even taking into account the different lengths of the two speeches and the somewhat different settings, the contrast is pretty remarkable. And the contrasting rhetoric is mirrored in the substantive focus of the two speeches. President Trump extols the US military buildup and the growth of the US economy since his election to the UN. President Xi, too, highlights China's economic growth. But unlike President Trump, who speaks only of the jobs he has created for Americans, Xi goes out of his way to link, to the broader to link China's success to broader prosperity. He says, when assessing China's development, one should not only see what achievements China has made, but also what China contributes to the world. Xi extols the Paris Climate Agreement, advocates for increased free trade and investment, and he hails the Chinese One Belt, One Road initiative as spurring the development of other countries. In his words, the Belt and Road Initiative originated in China, but has delivered benefits well beyond its borders. He notes that between 1950 and 2016, China has provided the developing world 400 billion RMB in foreign assistance. By contrast, President Trump emphasizes the cost of uncontrolled migration, offers a rationale for the United States not accepting more Syrian refugees into the United States, and while touting US support for humanitarian programs and global public health argues that the US 22% of the UN budget is unfair. Now these rather stark contrasting approaches are especially remarkable in the context of the long-standing debate between the United States and China about the nature of the international system and the roles and responsibilities of states within that system. Through multiple US administrations of both parties, the United States has pressed the view that states have obligations not only to their own citizens, but to the international community more broadly, an idea embodied in the very role of the Security Council. It was, after all, under a Republican president, President George W. Bush, that Bob Zellick set forth the idea of the responsible stakeholder, that China and other major players in the system have a duty to contribute to international peace and prosperity, not just attend to their own affairs. China, by contrast, has long insisted that the international order was founded on non-interference in the internal affairs of others, and that as a developing country in particular, China's primary responsibility was to its own citizens and not to others. Of course, as 
I'm sure everyone in this audience knows, China's attitude towards sovereignty and its openness to engaging with the outside world has evolved over time, beginning with Deng Xiaoping's uh, reform and opening up and moving in the 1990s toward greater acceptance of international engagement like international peacekeeping. During this period, China gradually joined a number of international institutions regimes, ranging from the Non-Proliferation Treaty to the WTO. Indeed, an interesting study of China's leaders' speeches to the General Assembly found that the first mention of globalization by a Chinese leader to the GA came in remarks by Chen Shi-chen, then the, uh, the vice premier, in 1996. Uh, you can find this in a great study published in a collection that was edited by Ian Johnson and Bob Ross that looked at China's evolving attitude towards globalization. But even for all that, it seems that the, the movement that we see today under President Xi seems more decisive. Fu Ying, who is a Chinese diplomat and the head of the NPCC Foreign Affairs Committee, recently wrote, and I quote, there's no doubt that China, in pursuit of its vision of international order, would want to play a growing role in global governance and is already making more efforts. In parallel, we see an evolution of US strategy, one that predates President Trump. President George W. Bush campaigned in 2000, uh, advocating a more humble foreign policy. President Obama sought to reduce US involvement and engagement overseas. But even for all these evolutions in US policy, President Bush still insisted that human rights should play a central role in US national security strategy, written into his national security strategy, uh, published in 2002. And for President Obama, although he advocated perhaps a more modest role for the United States, it was to be accompanied by a strengthening of international institutions and a commitment by the United States to help bring that about. President Trump's view seems quite different than either of his predecessors, reflected in a uh, op-ed widely noted written by two of his key advisors, the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, and his National Economic Advisor, Gary Cohn. In the op-ed they wrote in the Wall Street Journal, they said that President Trump, quote, has a clear-eyed outlook that the world is not a global community, but an arena where nations, non-governmental actors, and businesses engage and compete for advantage. We bring to this forum unmatched military, political, economic, cultural, and moral strength. Rather than deny this elemental nature of international affairs, we embrace it. They went on to say, and I quote again, America first signals the restoration of American leadership and our government's traditional role overseas to use the diplomatic, economic, and military resources of the United States to enhance American security, promote American prosperity, and extend American influence around the world." End quote. So what are we to make of this apparent role reversal? As I said at the outset, we need to distinguish between the rhetorical objectives and the underlying strategies. Given President Xi's audience, it's perhaps not surprising that he goes out of the way to tell the world's capitalists what they want to hear. For example, although President Xi did not talk of China's growing military capability at Davos, the way President Trump did at the UN, he did feature it in the work report he's just delivered to the CCP. He says in the work report, no one should expect us to swallow anything that undermines our sovereignty, security, and developmental interests. And it's also important to recognize that President Trump, in talking about the importance of sovereignty, um, his words resonated not just with Americans who are worried about UN black helicopters, 
but also with his audience at the UN. His biggest applause line came when he said, and I quote, as president of the United States, I will always put America first, just like you as leaders of your countries will always and should always put your countries first. And if you look at the White House transcript of the speech after it, it says applause. <laughs> so we need to go beyond the text and ask ourselves two questions. Are the approaches outlined by these two leaders in these two speeches a true reflection of their grand strategy? Or are they mere rhetorical cover for something else? And if so, what does that mean for the future of US-China relations and global peace and security more generally? So let's begin with the first hypothesis, that the views outlined in the two speeches accurately reflect the strategies that the two countries intend to pursue in the years ahead, uh, strategies in which the United States steps back and China steps up to global leadership. It's possible to argue that this is quite a benign, even positive scenario that will result in greater harmony and cooperation, or at least less tension, in the bilateral Sino-US relationship. After all, it removes a perennial irritant, the US critique of authoritarianism and human rights in China. Trump's commitment to, quote, let diverse countries with different values, different cultures, and different dreams not just coexist, but work side by side on the basis of mutual respect, in many ways reflects China's leaders' strongest wishes since the days of Tiananmen, that the US would cease to concern itself with China's internal governance and focus on international cooperation on areas of mutual interest. In addition, a China that is willing to shoulder a greater share of providing public goods fits well with President Trump's objective to shed the burdens of leadership and end free riding by others. And President Trump's idea or belief that the US is shouldering an unfair burden of providing global public goods provides an opening for the reform of institutions like the IMF that will give China a greater voice in return for their greater commitment to playing a role in the system. Now, lest you think this is a fantasy to think this is a, a positive potential development, this possibility of a new relationship was on full display when Sec Secretary of State Rex Tillerson went to Beijing in March. In Tillerson's first meeting with uh, the Foreign Minister Wang Yi, Tillerson spoke of the relationship in terms that seemed directly out of China's rhetorical playbook. In his opening remarks to the press, Tillerson said that the US-China relationship, quote, has been a very positive relationship built on no confrontation, no conflict, mutual respect, and always searching for win-win solutions. In response, President Xi said to Tillerson, you have made a lot of active efforts to achieve a smooth transition in our relationship under the new order. And I also appreciate your comment that the US-China relationship can only def be defined by cooperation and friendship. Uh, Jin Sanrong, a respected Chinese scholar who some of you may know, observed at the time, and I'm quoting from him, China has long been advocating this, but the United States has been reluctant to accept the point of mutual respect. Tillerson's comments will be warmly welcomed by China. Another scholar, Feng Zhang, put it more pithily in an article in Foreign Affairs entitled, Tillerson Speaks Chinese. <laughs> the point was reinforced in a recent article by Fu Ying, I mentioned before, the Chinese diplomat. She said, the Obama administration made some introspection and exercised prudence in the use of force. Now the Trump administration has taken one step further by reflecting on whether the United States should continue to uphold responsibilities for its allies and making enemies around the world. 
The international community should welcome such self-reflection and adjustment of American goals. Indeed, one could argue that what President Trump has talked about fits in with President Xi's advocacy of a new model of major power relationships, an idea which President Obama briefly flirted with but ultimately declined to embrace. In some ways, this model is a model of power transition that bears a resemblance to the power transition between the United Kingdom and the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, where the United States, uh, where Britain was willing to accept the United States taking a broader global role uh, in order to shed some of the burdens itself uh, and upholding the order that Britain had created. So we have to ask ourselves, given this potential convergence, is it plausible to take these two positions at face value and to see this is a new modus vivendi between the two countries. As a recognition on the one hand, that China has come to understand how it benefits from the international order developed under US leadership in the past and willingness to take on the burden of sustaining it. Um, it fits very well with Fairbanks' observation about the less pessimistic observers, that China will save the system rather than preside over its collapse. But this scenario, as benign as it may seem, is based on two assumptions. One, that the United States would willingly accede to China playing a greater role, and that China would take on the role in a way that's acceptable to others, and in effect continue the, the system built by the United States and proliferate the status quo, perhaps with some uh, modifications, that it would mend it but not end it. But there are other scenarios, other possibilities, other hypotheses. Rather than a smooth passing of the leadership baton, China might drop the baton and fail to provide the global public goods that the United States has provided for the last decades. Or alternatively, that China could seize the baton and wield it as a cudgel to beat up on its neighbors and others, the more pessimistic view of China's own past and its times when China has played a leadership role in the region. Indeed, it's possible to argue that President Xi's speech was just a giant uh, public relations ploy um, that uh, follows in the steps of Deng Xiaoping's Ta Guang Young Wei, follows in the steps of Hu Jintao's peaceful rise, uh, a set of arguments designed to lull the international community to sleep uh, and to avoid balancing and containment against the rising China until China is strong enough to impose its will and impose a Pax Sinica on the rest of the world. Two views, two hypotheses. But which is the better view? of China's goals and intentions. While our Chinese colleagues frequently admonish us to seek truth from facts, the facts in this case speak more like the I Ching than they do the Book of Revelations. Take two important Chinese initiatives of recent years, the One Belt, One Road Initiative and the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. In the optimistic version, my first hypothesis, both initiatives reflect a China that is stepping up to the plate of greater global responsibility and a recognition that for China to flourish, others must too. To the skeptics, however, both are thinly disguised efforts to extend Chinese hegemony and to undermine the rules-based international system embedded in established institutions like the IMF and the Asian Development Bank. Now, as I know this audience will appreciate, many in the United States take the second darker look about China's intentions. They point to what they view as China's assertive behavior in the South China Sea, its unwillingness to accept international arbitration under the, uh, the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, the pressure it places on Japan over the Senkaku-Daiyu Island dispute, uh, 
its relentless military modernization, its expanded naval presence in the Indian Ocean, its unwillingness to crack down effectively on North Korea. And on the economic and trade and investment front, they point to China's continued support for state-owned enterprises, its failure to protect intellectual property, its use of currency manipulation to favor Chinese exports, tied foreign aid designed to uh, help Chinese business, and support for repressive governments. This darker view of Chinese intentions was, it was summed up by a scholar associated with the conservative 2049 project, which some of you may be familiar with, uh, in which he wrote, in reality, Beijing is merely using the responsible stakeholder framework to further its own position and influence. From this point of view, they see in China's actions what Michael Pillsbury has called China's secret strategy to replace America as a global superpower, a hundred-year plan to rule the world. So which is it? Which of these two stories should we believe? Now, in trying to resolve the conundrum, both analysts and policymakers can draw on a variety of tools. For example, we could look to international relations theory, as a lot of us do in the academy. Realists might argue that the smooth transition between the United States, the smooth handoff of the baton, is unlikely, drawing on the oft-quoted Thucydidean maxim concerning the rise of Athens and the fear it induced in Sparta. But this pessimistic view from IR theory would be countered by the liberal internationalists who see in China's growing international engagement a moderating force that will lead to greater cooperation and not confrontation and, and so lead to a win-win solution. So IR theory offers a perspective. We might then turn to history and to considering past behavior or what some have, have termed strategic culture. Now, looking at strategic culture is particularly fitting here at the Fairbank Center. After all, JKF is remembered, among many things, for the book Chinese Ways in Warfare. In the introduction, Fairbank argues, study of the Chinese way in warfare can also ease the world's necessary adjustment to China's participation in the new international order. Why did Fairbank think that? Because, as I'm sure you all know, Fairbank found what he called a, quote, pacifist bias in the Chinese tradition, and so saw this in his less pessimistic view about what the implications of China's participation would be. Indeed, the Chinese have embraced this concept of strategic culture by glorifying the memory of the Ming-era Admiral Zheng He, who, according to the Chinese accounts, traveled the globe but brought neither conquest nor subjugation, but peace and prosperity. So a view from strategic culture. But even within the strategic culture tradition, another analyst also here from Harvard, Ian Johnston, has argued that, that Chinese strategic culture is actually the opposite, that it's a parabellum culture, and reaches a very different conclusion than Fairbank. We can also examine domestic political influences to try to find out which direction, which, which is the right conclusion about China's intentions, what Kenneth Waltz called the second image. For example, we could look at how the Communist Party's determination to hold on to power might lead it to fuel nationalist sentiment and to pursue a more aggressive foreign policy as a diversion from the many challenges that China faces at home. On the other hand, as we look at domestic politics, we might argue that the party's desire to cling to power will lead it to want to keep the Chinese economy humming and therefore avoid any disruptions in the international system that might come from more aggressive foreign policy. And of course, we get engaged in a similar exercise with the United States, applying IR theory, applying history and strategic culture, applying understandings of domestic politics to predict whether the United States will, in fact, 
continue down the path that Trump has talked about of pulling back, of focusing primarily on American interests, or return to the more global perspective of previous years. Will domestic pressures, for example, lead us to become more insular, protectionist, and internally focused? Or will the very need to deal with these economic challenges lead us to return to the need to engage in the global economy? So each of these approaches, whether it's IR theory, whether it's history, strategic culture, domestic politics, offer useful insights in how to think about the future trajectory of China and the United States. But as I hope this brief discussion has illustrated, they can't answer the question that it's possible to draw very different conclusions no matter which of these tools we try to use to assess the direction that China or the United States is going to go. So what should we think? I mean, how do we resolve this conundrum? In my view, part of the problem is the question itself. The idea that the path that China or the United States for that matter will take is foreordained and it's just a question of choosing the right methodology to get the right answer. To paraphrase the great Donald Rumsfeld, in this view, the future strategy of the two countries is a known unknown. And we just have to figure it out, just as Michael Pillsbury figured out what China's secret strategy really was. To my mind, the problem with this way of looking at the question is that it fails to take into account contingency and agency. To see the future, that future directions depend on choices rather than ineluctable forces. As Tom Schelling, another great son of Harvard, has taught us, strategy doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is in an interaction in which actors, whether individuals or states, seek to achieve their goals in the context of others simultaneously seeking to achieve their goals. So in my view, one of the most important determinants of China's future is the choices that we in the United States make. Just as the choices we will make will be heavily influenced by the decisions that are made in Beijing. As I said earlier, the benign scenario that I outlined is premised on the idea that the China, the China will step into the US shoes as the United States steps back. But without sustained US engagement, the forces that will shape China's choices are more likely to lead, in my view, to a less promising result. Consider the dynamics in East Asia. Absent a sustained US role, China's neighbors will have to make fateful decisions about whether to acquiesce in China's dominance or seek to balance China without US support. It doesn't take much imagination to see how this dynamic could produce arms races and security spirals that would imperil peace and prosperity of this vital region rather than lead to a new age of peace and prosperity. At the same time, to adopt the more pessimistic scenario, has the danger of becoming self-fulfilling. If we assume that China is hell-bent on ruling the world at our expense, we will be tempted to take measures which to China's eyes look like an attempt to sustain US hegemony at China's expense, and thus fuel the chances that China will pursue a revisionist course, and thus the potential for conflict. If that's right, then the best chance for China to move in the direction that we want which is to be a constructive contributor to peace and security, is not for the United States to step back and let China take the lead, nor is it for the United States to now prepare for an inevitable confrontation with China. But rather, the choice is to stay engaged, welcoming a broader role for China, but making clear that the United States will remain active, both in sustaining the system that we've helped build 
and providing a counterweight should China be tempted to move in a less benign direction. It's a strategy, as Michael mentioned, and I've called in the book I wrote with Michael Hanlon, Reassurance and Resolve, the idea that we have to be prepared to see China as a potential partner, but to be, not to take it for granted. And to realize that the future, the direction that China will take, is not already written in the Book of I Ching. It is contingent on what we do. We should, to some degree, be humble about our ability to shape the future, but it's a challenge that we can't afford to walk away from. Thank you for your attention, and I look forward to our discussion today. <laughs> Floor is open. Do you want to I'll call on people or questions, comments, rebuttals? Please. We're much more than that. So the question I have for you is, doesn't this kind of cultural contrast give us an opportunity to learn from China about how to move into the 21st century and play a central role, which is not going to be military, it's not going to be economic domination, it's going to be cultural, it's going to be, it's going to be political? It's a, it's a terrific point, but even there, as the historians in the room will tell you, that the, that, that interpretation of Chinese history is a contested one. Right? That is, even when China was empire, when China was at the center of the world, the version, the Zhonghe version, as told by Chinese officials, is not one that's accepted by others. It's certainly not accepted by others, all the other countries in the region. Right? If you go to Japan, this is not their view. If you go to Korea, it's not their view of what, what imperial, and imperial in your sense, China was. And so there are, these are, history is contested, even in these terms. And how we understand the times when China was at the center of the world is one that, that you can't get an uncontested view about what that means. And so, as I suggested, they're, they're, whether one can make the case for strategic culture influencing contemporary decisions, which is an interesting but debatable proposition, nonetheless, even understanding what that was. I teach the history of American foreign policy. And if you look at the history of American foreign we have lots of strategic cultures. We have a strategic culture of isolation. We have a strategic culture of, of active engagement. Going back to the earliest times, if you think about the US presence in China, beginning in the early part, the late 18th century, the late 19th century, there was an extended sense of the US future being engaged there as well. So it's, it's an important reference point to think about how our two countries have envisioned their grand strategies in the past and their roles in the world. But even there, they're subject to differing interpretations. So it's hard to be convincing to say, well, if you look at China's history, as Fairbank would say, it's a pacifist bias. Because Ian Johnson wouldn't agree, right? And, and so just even reading that history is a contested part of trying to understand what we can expect in the future. Comment? Or that China doesn't even have a word for being at the center. But he doesn't know that Zhongguo means central state or central states. So China sees itself at the center as a kind of hypothesis, as a kind of theory that can be proved or disproved. It's not a, a paradigm that can be assumed. 
And that's the problem that we face in the United States, is that we think of ourselves, to the extent we do, as center, as a kind of paradigm. It can't be subject to, to proof. We don't, we don't raise questions about what central means. So, but, it, but he, again, my point is that even in that terms, if you think about the history of the Ming and the decision after Zheng He's voyages to pull back and to not pursue this, I mean, how do, how, do we, how do we understand those two conceptions of China's grand strategy and hold them in our head at the same time and then say how that influences, I mean, they were, they were two very different choices that were made about how China decided to engage with the world. And the choice was made. I mean, it's a stunning choice, really unprecedented. To, to basically say, no, this is a mistake, right? That the cost to us domestically of this external engagement is too great. And we're going to pull in, right? I can't think of a, 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 an example from history. There may be other historians who can come up with one, but it's really quite a remarkable one. So when we say, what, what's, what story should we learn? What's, what is this conception? There are multiple conceptions, and there are debates right. about what those conceptions are. But it's, but it's important, but understanding the fact that there are these multiple conceptions is an important part of the, the challenge to begin with. If I could interrupt just with a quick uh, technical point. Yes. Because we're streaming. Yes. Please uh, wait when you when Jim chooses you for questions. Please wait to get the microphone before you speak. Otherwise, our audience that is not here will not hear what you are saying. Now, Xi is apparently becoming somewhat en enigmatic. In his first five years, he seemed to be a ben benevolent ruler, and now he seems to be assuming more totalitarian power in nature. And I'm just, there seems to be a shift in his level of confidence. Is it, do you, have you been noticing that? And, and do you have any explanation for that change in mind? Uh, the, I mean, it's a great question. The, the problem is, um, is sort of the, the, the post hoc understanding, which is that I think you would be correct in saying that when she took office, at least some people felt that he would be more of a reformer, be more open, more tolerant. Um, and it didn't turn out that way. But now looking back on it, many people say, well, it's actually apparent from the beginning that he wasn't going to be any of those things. So I don't know. I mean, and it's hard if you, is to decide, are we looking at this from the retrospective position where we can see the seeds of this view about the need for the, the party to be, have total control and like even before his ascendancy in 2012, or are we now just importing back into what we see now, what was going on in 2012? I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I, I had some conversations with President Xi just before he became president. And I have to say, like many people, and part of it was his style, his ability to talk without the note cards and all that stuff, that I had the sense that maybe something different was going on. I was clearly wrong. Uh, but whether that reflected a change, whether he changed, or whether we misread, I think is, a, is an open question. I have a feeling, my kind of retrospective view is we misread. But, um, but I'd be open to others who probably know more than I. Wait, you've got to wait for the mic. You heard Michael's admonition. Uh, I like your uh, recommendations for policy. Um, uh, full disclosure, I'm in uh, four uh, Chinese uh, technical and business organizations a uh, long time. Uh, so I see things from different perspectives as well as meeting with companies and government officials in China. 
Um, what I like about what you're recommending is, uh, from my view, I see the contrast of the possibility of China going one way or another way. And since we really don't know what that answer is, what you're recommending gives us the flexibility to deal with uh, whichever way that the Chinese leadership goes. Um, and part of this equation, of course, well, I think I want to stop there because that's really what the important issue is. Thank you. Craig? Yes. Yeah. Up there. Sorry. Thank you. I think you made a very strong argument in confronting these two speeches by actually saying something which then you didn't elaborate on, namely that they were already talking to each other. Namely, Xi Jinping was not just talking a blue streak, he was answering uh, 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 Trump. And now that is something where you made another good point, which I think is strong, namely that you say you don't have to take that at face value. That's a strategic thing. You know, it's a dialogic thing. Now, if you look at the actual policies pursued by uh, Xi Jinping on the very question of your title, namely of the question of sovereignty, you know, he might not have mentioned it a single time, but you look in the Chinese discussion, the notion of sovereignty has exploded over the last couple of years. I counted yesterday in preparation for your talk, I just counted how many different fields of sovereignty does the public discussion of the PRC claim. The number is 11. And this is you know, education sovereignty, economic sovereignty, uh, political sovereignty, and one sovereignty I'd never heard of in my life. This is opinion sovereignty, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that's a wonderful term, namely, you know, opinion sovereignty means that you basically wall off, I mean, you fly with the Lufthansa or in any other pl plane into China, and as you cross into the Chinese border, woof, off goes Google, you know, and the opinion sovereignty is straight in your face, you know? So I think I think one has to really see that in a very complex manner that the actual policies pursued in many of these areas are infused by a very strong notion of sovereignty and as a matter of fact a very broad notion of sovereignty quite apart from the fact that the, 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 kind of the mileage sovereignty got in China is American infused. I mean, it's the Committee for Public Information under President Wilson in the First World War, which spread the notion of the importance of sovereignty for the post-First World War states in China with a Chinese translation of these wartime speeches. You have an American notion which has now flourished, mushroomed in a wonderful manner, which comes back full face here. And I think that is something which you might take into consideration right, it's, it's by a analyzing great point. And, Xi Jinping's speech. Yeah, and uh, two, it's a great observation. Two responses to that which just triggered my thinking, which is if you think about it, if you think about the, the earlier history of American engagement in China, right back to the Open Door Note or even back to the Treaty of Wangsha, that, that you know, for the U.S., we were the advocates for Chinese sovereignty in the face of European imperialism, right, and that we had we had our own ulterior motives as to why we did that. But nonetheless, we were the, the ones who were standing up for it and certainly going into the early days of the Chinese Republic. Second, as you point out, and, and I mentioned briefly, but again, I've only just started to digest the work report. I mean, one of the things that, so I did mention that the word sovereignty didn't appear in the Davos speech. It does appear in the work report a lot. And what's even more striking is this much more powerful advocacy of the Chinese model. 
in the work report. Uh, again, I haven't read the whole thing, so I, I want to hold, this is a tentative observation until I've kind of digested the whole text. But there seems to be sort of not only is it an advocacy of sovereignty, but also uh, saying that this model with the sovereignty of opinion and stuff is a good deal for others as well. Ezra. I think you made a very good point that what China does will depend on our agency and our policies. And if you look, uh, I have a two-part question. One is, if you look at the way America is behaving now under Trump, not just the tweets, but sort of the sum total of what's going on now, how, what, what do you think that's going to be the impact on China? And <clears throat> if you were advising a new administration, uh, what kind of approach would you suggest that they take in trying to get the most positive response from China? Great questions. You know, we were talking a little bit about this before the lecture started, but you know, what I found, um, and I've had a, there's been a little bit of interregnum of my visiting China as they've been preoccupied with the 19th Party Congress. I'm making my first trip in three weeks. I know you're headed there and eager to hear what people are thinking. Um, but my impression, and this is why I quoted uh, Jin Sairong and, and others, is that for many Chinese, they think this is great because they, they do see this scenario, this, this convergence in which is, as long as China finds a way to scratch some of the itches, dealing with IPR or something on currency, that China will be left alone to do what it wants to do. And that, um, that this transactional basis in which the United States isn't trying to impose itself, as long as China attends to fixing some of the deals, that you know, we're not going to be too concerned about what, what it does, where it does it. Um, is potentially quite attractive from the, the Chinese point of view. Whether that leads to a good result, I've argued, is not. I don't think it leads to a good result because I think it, it, it risks bringing out the worst likelihood for China, which is a sense that it is unconstrained to behave in ways that are not necessarily in the interest of others and certainly won't be seen by others in the region. So I, I think that the danger here is that there will be this kind of uh, condominium almost between the US strategy and the Chinese strategy, which will suit their view of the world and President Trump's view of the world, but not necessarily lead to a long-term stable set of relationships. So in, in terms of what we need to do, it seems to me, it, it is, there is, the, the relationship has to be seen in the whole and in the context of this extraordinarily important and delicate power transition that's taking place. I mean, China, obviously, there is a change in the balance. But how this comes out, and with all due respect to Graham, it's, the story is not quite the way he tells it. Um, there, are, there are possibilities for new kinds of adjustments here that, that would, be, would be good. But it is one in which the United States simply can't either fight it and say, we're not, we're not having any of it, or saying, fine, as Hugh White would argue, just let them have it, right? And that's where I think the, the opportunity is, is to say that there's something broader at stake than just changing steel or just you know, helping us out a little bit more in North Korea, that this is more about the nature of the international system and the role that states are gonna play in the international system. And that if China is really willing to do the things that she talks about in the Davos speech, and this is not just rhetoric but reality, this should be very welcome. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing wrong 
with the United States being able to share the burdens of leadership with a country that is largely sharing the same set of views about the nature of the international order. Uh, but we can't simply assume that's going to happen, and we can't, and, and therefore just turn it over to China. But we can't also assume that that any role for China has got to be, you know, contrary to our interests. Yes, let me answer. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I am a master's student at the Davis Center for Russian Near Asian Studies, and so I, of course, bring. A Russian context to, to this talk, and I wondered if you had any insight to share on how, you know, assuming that we do see this, this increase, this greater cooperation with China and this uh, foundation on relations in, uh, in mutual respect, um, how that might have an effect on U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Russia and, say, the annexation of Crimea in terms of, you know, that is that part of, how does that shift our, our foreign policy? Well, it's, it's a great question. And part of the problem gets to the sort of the deeper debate, which many are having about just what is President Trump's grand strategy, right? I mean, which is to say, and especially, and it's, it's very much in play vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I mean, I, I've suggested it's, it, we have some outlines of what it is vis-a-vis -vis China, but vis-a-vis but -vis Russia, there's sort of like, you know, you, there's more, ambiguity in the administration's policy towards Russia than almost any other thing, which is that it, it, it feels like uh, President Trump feels about Russia the way I've suggested that he feels about China, which is that we should just let them do whatever they want to do, and you know, especially internally, and if we just leave them alone, then they'll leave us alone, and we'll all be fine, and we can cooperate together. So there's a, there's a, a variant of that. But unlike with China, um, and in part because of domestic politics, in part because of the composition of the administration, there's more of the more traditional, but we can't put up with Crimea and we have to be concerned about those things. So there's a certain, there, there's less consistency, I think, in what we're hearing on Russia policy. But one certainly could imagine and one thought that what one was going to get, um, and certainly from the UN address, which wasn't about China, it was about generally about foreign policy, that that his attitude toward Russia would be similar, which is that it's none of our business whether Putin steals elections or throws opponents in jail. Uh, we have a lot of things in common, and we have some risks in managing the relationship, and that's what we should focus on. And if we can work together in Syria, that's great. And you know, and you know, the, the Crimea problem is a bit of a problem for him because it, it, in, it, by his own account on sovereignty, there is a problem with sovereignty there, but. The, the underlying logic of the position that Trump outlined in the General Assembly speech would lead one to what one thought one heard during the campaign, which is that this is, this is we, we can get along just fine and we can do business together. Stay right over here. I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of the responsible stakeholder, but I would take it in a different direction, the, the direction of soft power. Um, I'm particularly interested in China as picking up the mantle as a custodian of the humanitarian world order. In other words, joining the international humanitarian community. Uh, as the United States retreats from its responsibilities in that sphere, um, will China step up? Uh, and if China steps up as a major funder player in the humanitarian um, active sphere, how does that change how we see what humanitarian outreach means? 
Um, and then just as another sort of a bigger question, what about soft power and China? Something that I think that China is putting a lot of resources into from education uh, to uh, humanitarian outreach. And what would you say about that as well? Right. So um, the, as I mentioned, you know, I mean, clearly she was trying to promote that idea. I mean, the fact that he goes out of his way in the speech to talk about the 400 billion RMB that China has provided in, in foreign aid and all the humanitarian assistance. He talks about OBOR as kind of a Marshall Plan for Central Asia and the like means that, it, again, rhetorically, there's sort of a sense that we get that, that this is, you know, if we're going to be a big player, that we do that too. Um, again, the question is, is it real? And so that's why the debate over the Asian Investment Bank is so important because, you know, the Chinese would say, this is a, this is a public good that everybody's going to benefit, everybody's going to have this infrastructure, it's going to create peace, harmony, and, and economic growth to everybody's benefit. And the U.S. Treasury Department rings their hand and say, oh, but they're not going to hold the OECD DAC standards and, you know, they're going to, and they're not going to meet the, the Asian Development Bank standards for transparency and lack of corruption. And, and, you know, the record is mixed. I mean, China's own record as a foreign aid giver is not spectacular, right? It's probably better than it, it was at one point. Initially, China's engagement in Africa, Deborah Brodigan's book, very interesting, right, about, you know, what went on. And, and frankly, from a soft power point of view, it backfired because what they did was actually not seen by many in Africa in particular as being particularly beneficial to African people. And they built sports stadiums and parliaments and, you know, but they didn't deal with poverty and health and disease. Is that changing? Um, that's the question. I mean, I think that, that in terms of the soft power and the rhetoric, President Xi and the leadership want to say yes. We're just like that, right? We're just, just like those things. And again, with this role reversal, you know, you have this U.S. kind of, the, the budget that Trump offers for foreign aid is catastrophic, right? So here we've got, she's saying, we're going to do more and more and more of this stuff. And Trump saying, we're going to do less and less and less of this stuff. So you're right. I mean, so one version of the story is the U.S. is stepping back. China will step forward. And thank goodness, because if the U.S. steps back, who's going to fill the void if they don't? And the, but the critics would say, no, they've got ulterior motives. And it's like they're just, you know. Um, you can see it through either lens. There's, there's evidence the facts don't speak for themselves. They're, and if you want to compile a dossier in either direction, as the propagandists for both sides will do, right? Just like the, you know, the Confucius Institute debate, right? Is this, you know, positive thing that's helping universities teach uh, and schools learn Chinese, or is this propaganda for, you know, the Chinese government? There are arguments on both sides, and I think, and that's why, you know, you're not going to get an, an unambiguous answer to the question about what's the deep strategy, is Pillsbury right or not? Yes. I want to ask you a question I know something about, because I lost a lot of money in China. It's, rec <laughs> it's reckless disregard for commercial law. In the 90s, I was a lawyer, and I was invited there to talk about the UCC when they were trying to join the WTO. And then with Home Depot, we lost $160 million and pulled out of China. And one really interesting thing is three of our employees made chops, Home Depot chops, and ordered $300,000 worth of merchandise, sent someplace else. And then the vendors put their own people in, and they would say, now, don't, don't buy this kitchen from, uh, from Home Depot. Buy it from us. And it is a total reckless disregard for the law, commercial law. I have to believe that is going to affect their sovereignty. 
certainly, you know, many American companies, many European companies are now pulling out of China. You can't make any money. Yeah. Now, they, what you describe is absolutely right. I talked to a lot of people in the AmCham and, and others. This is, and people are pulling out of it. And they, they see this as, um, as, as now hopeless. I mean, people hung in and hung in, and, but people aren't hanging in anymore. I mean, I think that, you know, this is, it's, it's one of the bill of particulars on the side that says China has now gotten so big it doesn't need foreign investment, right? The whole, I mean, the experience that it's had um, with the Japanese investment and some of the things that happened to Toyota and others, you know, with when the nationalists whipping up fervor and having shops destroyed with the way Lottie's been treated, this, the South Korean chain and, I mean, there is a certain degree of arrogance about this, which basically says we don't care anymore. We don't need it anymore. Uh, we're actually exporters of capital. We don't need investment. Uh, and we used to have you in so we could steal your IPR, but now we don't even need to steal it anymore to have you come in because we can steal it through the Internet. So, um, and so this is part of the, the version that says they're not responsible stakeholders, that, they are, that they're not going to be people who uphold you know, the principles of the GATT and the WTO and all that stuff. And there's plenty of evidence on that side of it. And, you know, the idea that they would be tamed by it and that they would, as they got into the system, that they would become more law-abiding, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that's not the case. One footnote. In 1994, they came to Home Depot. Minister of Building Materials, Professor Du, the only professor left from Tianjin University of Cultural Wrestling, and two people with tubes, and they pulled out pictures of a Home Depot building in Tianjin, China, with everything but my merchandise. <laughs> I was a vendor. <laughs> I won't even go into what Jim Ingles said, but so go, so so Jim, who was on the board, went went to China, found out we get an import export license, or they did, and the only only DIY Western DIY that could build stores in multiple markets. We made the board agreed to the deal. Then the board discovered the Chinese army was behind, and they came to Home Depot because they were the leader in building material change. We didn't do it. Instead, but we trained 300 of their people, and then and then many years later, <laughs> Home Depot decided to buy Professor Dube's Homeway, <laughs> and, and what they discovered was there's no lumber for sales, there's no there's no power tools. You, you get a cement slab, and that's why IKEA does so well there. But you know, I only lost a million. <laughs> you know, sign feels so bad. Anyway, it's, it's just an example of this arrogance, because I was there two years ago and went out to the city that I call the first city of the 21st century, and it's like zero carbon city. So they're doing a lot of good things as far as the environment is concerned, because I spent five years at Oxford working on the environment. But the important thing is that, you know, <laughs> can you trust them, you know? Well, and again, it's, you know, it, and what is, that, what is that foretell for where they're going? It's a great, 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 great story, an unfortunate story, but it's, it's a cautionary story. Yes. Hi, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, so I'm an undergraduate, and I've been working with a professor who's been working on the Thucydides trap, and which you mentioned in the speech. Um, so I had a question about kind of uh, specifically the idea of Thucydides' trap is that the you know the rise of Athens and the fear that it instilled in Sparta made war inevitable. So I'm wondering, kind of, uh, a lot of people have said, you know, even though it might be subconscious or maybe it's conscious, the idea for most Americans going back, you know, many generations is that we are the primary dominant power in the world. We've written the post World War II order, and whether subconsciously the idea that some power, rising power, will displace us just is something that cannot be intuitively accepted. 
Um, and I guess the second question, sorry, is uh, at the State Department um, during kind of your term and the first and a little bit into the second half of the Obama term, the idea of the pivot or the rebalance and Kurt Campbell, who is one of the architects of that policy, uh, kind of made statements saying that maybe we should focus more on the allies, our allies in the region, so the Philippines, you know, Korea, um, instead of necessarily directly and only on China. What do you think about that policy of, you know, also engaging with uh, the other states in the region? And do you think that's a policy or, or that was successful or that should be readopted? Thanks. So just on the latter, I'm, you know, the, from, I mean, there's a lot of debate about what the policy was and what it should be called. And, um, but the, I mean, from the beginning, this was, it, it involved everyone. It involved a, a set of engagements with China and a set of relationships with the allies. And, and I think there's, there's no U.S. president, including the current president who has had to learn it, that could imagine devising a strategy for the United States towards East Asia that didn't have that at center, our traditional, at least our traditional post-World War II allies. So I think, you know, from the beginning, if you go back and look at um, the, the first action of the Obama administration was the first visitor to the White House in the Obama administration, official visitor, uh, was the Prime Minister of Japan, right? The first kind of official action in the, the development of the strategy was the decision to sign the Treaty, and Amity of, uh, Treaty of Amity and Cooperation with ASEAN. So at the heart of the strategy from the beginning was, uh, was very much a focus on the region as a whole and the, the nature of the U.S. engagement. It obviously had an important China piece as well, um, and that piece evolved over time, but it, but it is central, uh, and it has been central to U.S. policy, I think, uh, for a long time. Um, you know, and I think that that's, I mean, it, it is part of what I was talking about, which is that, that it is part of what shapes the choices for China. Um, and it has been part of our argument for a long time, which is that the China is actually better served and has a better chance of rising peacefully with the United States engaged with our allies than if they were untethered and left on their own. Imagine what Japanese policy would be if there weren't some assurance that the United States was going to be there to support Japan in the event of problems developing in the Sino-Japanese relationship. So I think that that's, it is central to the way we think about uh, our engagement in the region and why U.S. policy has always made the argument that the alliances in fact are not a strategy of containment towards China, but rather one that actually creates a context in which it is easier for China to rise peacefully. Coming that way. I'm from China. Uh, I was born and raised up in Shanghai. Um, so before I went to U.S. to study, I thought I was uh, exposed to the international world enough because Shanghai is, uh, I think, the most ex uh, uh, international city in, in China. However, uh, when I went to U.S. Uh, six years ago uh, for my study, I thought, oh, you know, the culture difference really shocked me at that time. And uh, I can feel that uh, people's um, values, the mindset, ideology, uh, everything, you know, were totally different. So my question is that um, as China is moving to the central stage of the world, um, how do you think? Of, I, I think definitely uh, the Chinese culture, Chinese value uh, will influence uh, the world. 
you know, so my question is, uh, how do you think about this part? And uh, uh, do you think, uh, yeah, the people in other uh, culture are ready for it? <laughs> well, that's, that last part is a tough question. I, I, um, you know, I, th I mean, clearly, if you read, and again, I've, it's, I've only had a chance to read excerpts, but if you read the, the, the work report, I mean, one of the arguments that Xi Jinping is making is that, yes, we expect Chinese values and culture to, to influence the rest of the world. And we think that's a good thing, that actually that these values and things, just as the U.S. has made kind of an argument about the universality of our values and how everybody should do it, there's, there's pretty much for the first time, you're starting to hear from Chinese leaders a sense of that not only do we have a different model for ourselves, but this is a, this is a model that other people should follow as well. Now, it's not done in a kind of a crusading way, saying we're going to go impose it, at least yet. But, but it is certainly a much more uh, assertive view that the Chinese model is not just good for China, but good for others, and that China is going to be more of a proponent of that in contrast to the West. And you hear hints of this in, in Xi Jinping. If you read, I'm good friends with Fu Ying, but if you read some of her stuff, you know, she's very aggressive about this and basically saying that the Western values are bad, ours are good, and people should have them, right? So I think you've, you've identified a very important point, which is that, that this, you know, one, one of the things that I didn't talk about, but if this comes, becomes part of the Chinese strategy, there is a, a problem there because the, one of the things that has, for the synthesis that I talked about, the Trump-Xi synthesis to work, is based on neither side is going to go out and push its values around, right? But if, if, if we stop and China starts, it will be much more challenging for the United States to sit back, right? I mean, it's one thing for China to say, we're going to do what we're going to do, you do what you want to do, and we'll leave everybody else alone to figure out what they want to do for themselves. But if we get actually into a quasi-ideological competition, like we did during the Cold War, this is a recipe for a lot of conflict. And it would certainly make it much more difficult, I think, to sustain the live and let live version of Trumpism that I've outlined as kind of being part of his, his speech. Thank you. So, um, so you mentioned two hypotheses, but there's another hypothesis, which means the U.S. will step back and uh, uh, China will not step in. So which means the world will fall into the Kinderberger trap, which means nobody, yeah. neither China nor U.S. will provide world order. So, what, so, so is that possible? If yes. that's possible, what would be the consequence? Yeah, and no, how I, likely I, is that? I, I mean, uh, you're, I, I mentioned in passing, my sort of three models are the smooth passing of the baton, the dropping of the baton, or the baton becomes the cudgel. I didn't talk as much about that one, but you're right to, to raise it because it is the Kindleberger trap. And it is, it is, if you think about it, and part of it, and there are many reasons why I'm not comfortable with this idea of our stepping back, reasons we talked about. But, you know, the experience has been whether it's the 20s or the 30s most recently, but to some extent the 70s, when the U.S. has stepped back, Good things have not happened, right? Or, and bad things have happened, right? Which is that, that you know, it's a very American-centric view, perhaps, but there are problems when we're engaged, and we make mistakes when we're engaged. But we also do some good things, too. And, and nothing good happens when we step back, because there is a vacuum. And the nature, 
You know, we all, we all studied IR relations. There's anarchy out there. And there's the problem of organizing international cooperation. Right? I teach this in my core international relations course, is that if in the absence of a, a supranational authority, the ability to achieve cooperation depends on some actors in the system taking up responsibility for making it happen. There's no invisible hand that makes international cooperation happen. And you know, the, the problem with the Trump analysis, I don't want to sound too political here, is that even if you accept that there's free riding, which of course there is, that the net benefit to the United States of providing these public goods is so great that it's still worth it to us even if people are free riding. And what will happen if we don't is the baton will drop and we will see disorder, right? And, and, and so there is a huge risk there because the system is not self-organizing to promote cooperation. And even though there are Pareto superior outcomes to be had, they aren't going to happen invisibly. And we know why, right? Because each country making rational calculations on its own will lead to an, a, a group suboptimum outcome, tragedy to commons, all that good stuff. So there is a need for somebody to play this role. And, you know, as I said, I mean, if you were confident that China were going to do it, this could be like the transition when Britain no longer could or would the United States stepped up to it, and it went pretty well, right? I mean, it was, you know, there were some transitions, World War I, but, you know, there, but it was still, the, the order had a champion, right? So either you believe that, that China is basically a status quo power that, that will continue this with variance, mend it, not end it, but still carry it, or if not, and the baton drops, and we end up, you know, with no motivating forces in the system to do it, I don't believe it will self-organize, and I think the scenario that you describe is one that's very likely to happen. Yes. Yeah, my question will be simple. You mentioned Yan Jiaxin's work. He examined Chinese strategy in a, in, from a cultural perspective. So my question is, how do you conceptualize US uh, strategic culture, if there has any? Thank you. It's a great question. As I say, I mean, this is, I teach this, and so I think about it a lot. And, you know, I mean, the, we, have, we have several traditions, right? And um, the tradition that we think of, and I didn't really fully respond to the earlier question, of the U.S. playing this very activist global role is fairly recent. I mean, for all of us, it's our lifetimes. But it is, it, is, it is not the history of the United States, right? It is a history that even after the immediate aftermath of World War II, we were, we were about to do what we always do, which is to go home, right? And it really wasn't until 1946, um, for reasons which are still debated, the United States viewed the nature of the rise of, of communism in the Soviet Union as requiring a change in the strategic culture, of a sustained engagement of standing armies, of a national security state, of all that stuff, of, of, of sustained predominance as being the US strategy. That was not our strategic culture prior to that time. There were some people who had those views. Teddy Roosevelt had one view of it, but Wilson had another, right? Wilson believed you know, that we should stay out of these things if we could. So, um, so in trying to understand, this is why the idea of strategic culture is, is so ambiguous, is that there are traditions, and they do influence, right? People have drawn conclusions, right? So we have a narrative it, that has up till now been pretty powerful, which is when we go home, the world goes badly, so we can't go home. But then Trump has now challenged that. And Trump has said, no, that's not right. It's actually, we're just being chumps, and we're, we don't need to do this. So is this you know, violating US strategic culture, and therefore we will necessarily bounce back? I don't know, because we have these different traditions 
that we have. And strategic culture informs the debate. It informs how people talk about it. It informs the analogies that people use in the political debate. We just, I mean, if anybody wants to hear the alternative to Trumpism, read the speech that John McCain gave yesterday when he got the Liberty Medal. I mean, it's like completely different conception of what the US strategic culture is and what we should do. So you have two competing visions out there. But what Trump has said, you know, you can find this, you know, there, you know, you go back to, you know, Bora during World War I, right? I mean, you know, and, and, or William Jennings Bryan and others, you know, this, we've had these different strains all through our history. Uh, the John Quincy Adams strain, right, versus the Hamilton strain. And, and so you can't, this is going back to my point about China, there are different traditions, all of which influence, but there isn't a single one or an uncontested view about what our strategic culture is or how it shapes what we're going to do. So slightly a follow-up on that, because I would say that recent strategic culture uh, may have uh, pretty significantly emphasized the role of democracy and democratic values uh, as a key part of um, the, uh, a normatively right way to do uh, sovereignty. Uh, and that probably contributes uh, to some degree to Chinese insecurity <laughs> about what the US wants in the long run uh, for China. So is there any, uh, or would you say as a former uh, US policymaker that it'd be worth re-looking at uh, legitimacy to include something like uh, Chinese conceptions of performance uh, legitimacy, and maybe you get, maybe there are other ways to arrive at good forms of governance. And I think it, there's kind of an intersection here with some of what Richard Haas has been talking about uh, in terms of conceiving sovereignty as a set of responsibilities instead of a set of rights. So if you could just talk about that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, so I mean, it's, again, there, there are just different strains in America, and that, you know, it is very striking I mean, I mentioned the, the George W. Bush national security strategy, which was incredibly Wilsonian, right? I mean, you don't think of George W. Bush as being Wilsonian, but incredibly Wilsonian, right? I mean, it talks about the centrality of democracy to our, our, our national strategy. And what we've seen, and no less, no other than Henry Kissinger, who I think laments it, but has basically accepted the fact that it's difficult to imagine an American foreign policy that doesn't have some element of that in it, right? That we have just, we've, we've never quite been able to get into a kind of Richelieu, raison d'etat view of national strategy. Again, I think Secretary Kissinger probably regrets it, but nonetheless, it just, it, it, it keeps coming back. Um, and so I think it is inescapable. I do think this is, going back to whether do we have a strategic culture, that it is, as a domestic matter, it's, it's difficult to imagine. And, by the way, I, again, I'm trying not to be too political, but, you know, the, the, the other thing that's striking about Trump's GA speech is I read you all the parts about sovereignty and different cultures and stuff. The part I didn't talk about was his attack on Venezuela and Cuba, right, and how they have socialism and it's bad for their people and it's denying human rights. Where does that fit into his model? The answer is it doesn't. But even Trump, who is you know, advocating sovereignty and mutual respect and stuff, that doesn't apply in the case of Venezuela and Cuba. Right? It's not, I mean, Cuba's not, I mean, they're not invading our sovereignty. Whatever else they're doing, they're not invading our sovereignty, right? And, and despite the language about mutual cultures, diverse, you know, he says it's unacceptable. Socialism is unacceptable, right? So it tells you a lot that even with this conception that, that President Trump has, you can't get away from the values dimension. Uh, and I, so I think this is something that 
it's difficult for me to imagine, um, even though you know there's amb ambiguity and ambivalence about when we get too involved in democracy promotion and human rights thing, that you know we see the what's happening in the Rohingyas and we see this and we just think we got to do something about that. Yes. Um, thank you very much for your talk. And I'm a graduate student uh, from history department. And I have a, I have a question. So um, I, I agree that, um, that um, you argue that uh, how um, China would conceive its own role in the world order in the future has a lot to do with how the U.S. is going to play a role in shaping that. And I think I, think, uh, I agree with that, but at the same time, I'm also, I cannot help but thinking about the different context That's also, that I think also plays a very important role there. That is the domestic ideological world in China itself. So I mention it because um, I think it's important to keep in mind that the legitimacy of Chinese government isn't uncontested like in, 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 in China. So uh, reflected from public intellectuals debate, and at least you have three or four, or, or at least three major different ideologies that are going on. And I'm, I'm not sure that uh, the, how the public public intellectual discourse work in China is the same as here. So I'm not sure if they have a direct influence on policy making, but I do think it's important for the government itself because the, the government needs some kind of support from public intellectuals to justify its own role and its, um, its legitimacy. But there is another important element to this. So I think how US government and especially how perhaps scholars, intellectuals, and together with the government in the West, trade uh, or understanding China's rise has a very important influence on Chinese public intellectuals as well. So for instance, a few days ago, there was a very popular kind of statement. It's called the true European. That was, was a group of very conservative European thinkers and scholars and drafted this this, this statement about what a true European value should be. And then very quickly, that statement got translated entirely in China and widely support, widely circulated. So there were people who felt disappoint, disappointed and there were people uh, supported. So also Trump's election also have a great influence. So I'm wondering if, uh, if you, what do you think about this, this context or ideological, domestic ideological context play in how Western government or, or American government uh, in thinking about its own role in, in the world order? It's, it's a great question and it's, and it's vexed American policymakers for a long time because there are two completely opposite views, which is one, there's a view that the United States needs to remain an active advocate of its views about human rights and democracy and freedom in China because it can't abandon those voices in China that want to do it and that they need the sense that they have support from others, that people are aware and speaking up for them and caring about it. That's one point of view that the advocacy community has argued for a long time. And there's another point of view that says it's the worst thing you can do for those voices in China because it allows the Chinese government to say this is just America trying to do color revolutions to undermine China, to weaken China, and you saw what they did to the Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. And so every time you speak out in favor of those things in China, you actually damage the domestic debate and the advocates there because they're seen as 
puppets or you know, tools of Western damage. And we have, it's not just about China, we have the same debate about the green movement in Iran, and, and you know, these are contested debates, which is even if you care about human rights in China, what's the best way to support it and to do that? So I think there's an awareness of this debate, but a lot of confusion about what the right strategy for the United States to be. And I don't, even for me, I mean, I have a lot of ambivalence about this. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I, um, I find it hard for us not to say something when we see things, especially because, you know, we theoretically everybody signed up for the Universal Declaration and China signed the International Covenant on Political Civil Rights, and so they ought to do it, right? If they're going to be, you know, in the international system, they ought to live up to it. On the other hand, you know, we saw what happened when Ambassador Huntsman went out and met with these people, and you know, did it help or did it hurt? I don't know. You tell me. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. And as a policymaker, I often feel very conflicted about. What, how we can best support the voices that you're talking about. Anyway, thank you all. It's great questions, great opportunity for me. Thank you. to make a few, a few thank you remarks of my own. Uh, the first thank you is actually to all of you, uh, not just for joining us this afternoon, but for such a tremendously interesting and, and wide-ranging questions, we, we, which I'm really struck how much they are true to the spirit of this lecture. Uh, we didn't pre-select questions, but there was an invisible hand that had us uh, moving from uh, policy questions to uh, questions of IR theory, questions of commercial relations, questions of what U.S. policy should be on a, on a wide range of, of issues. So thank you very much for, for your participation. Um, among the other rewards besides the intellectual, we invite you to continue the conversation uh, at a reception uh, in the space just, just outside the auditorium. Uh, my second thank you is to the wonderful Fairbanks Center staff. It's a, a lot of work putting together these big events. There was unexpected uh, physical exercise required because uh, of all the running up and down to, uh, to uh, deliver the microphone. So thank you to, to the great Fairbanks staff for putting this together. Um, and I'll use this as an opportunity to uh, remind you that um, next week is Harvard Worldwide Week, uh, a, a new celebration of Harvard's engagement with the world. Uh, and we have an amazing uh, range of activities coming up next week. Uh, please join us for uh, as many of those as you can. Uh, my final thanks, of course, is to our, to our speaker. Um, the, uh, the, uh, I remember distinctly being in college, and I was just starting to learn about China, and we had a lecture from a Kremlinologist. Uh, those older people in the room will remember what a Kremlinologist was. And it was explained that when, when, the, when the party meets in Moscow, uh, you, you, the way to read what really matters is sometimes it says applause, and then it's kind of important, but sometimes it says sustained applause. Uh, you mentioned, and then it's really, you mentioned this, this re reversal of rules and then suggested that maybe it wasn't as real as people had speculated. I've never seen this criminology technique applied to White House press releases. That, that is, that is a, a role reversal. Um, the old saw says prediction is difficult. Especially, Especially about, about the future. We're at a challenging moment in, uh, in U.S. politics. We're at a challenging moment in U.S.-China relations. Jim, thank you so much for uh, uh, showing not only uh, 
the, the importance of trying to make sense, the importance of prediction, but also the benefits of bringing academic modes of analysis towards policy-related questions. It's exactly what we look for in this lecture. Thank you so much. Thank you.